You're listening to This Week in Health Innovation on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, Flying Solo Today. For those of you not familiar with my work, I fancy myself as a recovering managed care executive. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com, HealthInnovationMedia.com, and PrecisionMedicine.Center. If your hospital, health system, physician venture, or healthcare conference is looking for social media marketing support, including digital media content development, curation, engagement, or amplification, ping me on Twitter via at 2 healthguru or email greg with two g's at healthinnovationmedia.com. And now on to the show. My very special guest making an encore appearance today is Ian Morrison, whose bio notes... Ian is an internationally known author, consultant, and futurist specializing in long-term forecasting and planning with particular emphasis on healthcare and its changing business environment. He combines research and consulting skills with an incisive Scottish wit to help public and private organizations plan their longer-term future. He's written, lectured, and consulted on a wide variety of forecasting, strategy, and healthcare topics for government, industry, and a wide variety of nonprofits in North America, Europe, and Asia. Ian has spoken to a range of audience from the boards of Fortune 100 companies to the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in Beijing. He's worked with more than 100 Fortune 500 companies in healthcare, manufacturing, information technology, and financial services. Recent client sponsors include GE. Kaiser Permanente and the Mayo Clinic. He's a frequent commentator on the future for television, radio, and the print media. Ian is the author of Leading Change in Healthcare, Building a Viable System for Today and Tomorrow, and Healthcare in the New Millennium, Vision, Values, and Leadership. His previous book, The Second Curve, Managing the Velocity of Change, was a New York Times bestseller and Business Week bestseller. Ian is a founding partner in Strategic Health Perspectives, a forecasting service for clients in the healthcare industry, along with joint venture partners, Harris Interactive, Nielsen, and the Harvard School of Public Health Department of Health Policy and Management. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig, and thanks for having me back. Glad you agreed. So, uh, the cause for our chat today is I've been following, always follow your Twitter stream with interest. It, it's uh, it's sparse, but when you post something, it's always, it always gets my attention. So let's focus. Uh, we're going to first talk a little bit about what you're seeing happening in the marketplace right now, and then we're going to sort of wind up and walk through an article that you uh, posted to Hospital and Health Network. So my first question for you today is, um, so what do you make of the current state of the uh, Geo, primarily the GOP efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act? Well, the metaphor, Greg, I've been using is that, you know, repeal and replace is a bit like breaking up the Beatles and you just keep George and Ringo and expect it to sound good. Um, and I, I think that metaphor's right. Um, and, and let me just expand on that. You know, I mean, John and Paul are kind of important and and John and Paul are the bits where you raise money 
through taxes and other givebacks by the industry, and you spend that money uh, providing coverage for people who can't afford the product. Um, and basically, uh, you know, George's uh, guaranteed issuance and Ringo is staying on your parents' plan till you're 27. And what I think they're struggling to do is basically find a way to navigate keeping all the good bits and, and still give the Koch brothers their money back, which I think is really the motivation for all of this, is, is take away the taxes that we're underwriting, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act. So, um, you know, and you know better than anyone, because you follow this industry so closely and are our thought leader, is, is that... You know they've they've got it through the house by strong arming everybody and making the bill the initial bill even worse in my view, with some of the uh, appeasement to the Freedom Caucus, but now the serious stuff starts and it's over to the adults in the Senate and I think the process will be a little bit more slow, uh, more measured, more thoughtful. Hopefully, um, you know the betting is still in the next month or two, they may get something over the line because it's really one of these things that they have to deliver on. Otherwise, it will be seen as a failure of the Trump administration and of the Republican Party uh, to not have something you can call repeal and replace. And I think those of us who thought the Affordable Care Act was actually pretty decent are worried that, you know, how ugly it will be when all is said and done. Um, But I think... uh, you know, I mean, and it's impossible to handicap. I mean, I was trained by Roy Amara at the Institute for the Future. I succeeded him many, many years ago when Roy taught as well, you know, don't substitute error for uncertainty. If you don't know, you don't know. Um, and I think it is highly uncertain. And it will spin around, I think, the contributions of senators from those states uh, who have expanded Medicaid. Uh, because that, to me, is actually the most important thing in the Affordable Care Act that is in some jeopardy, which is the Medicaid expansion for the long run. And so my bet is that, that the Medicaid expansion will be still in there, that the, in, the subsidies will not be as uh, uh, meager or misdirected as they are for the exchanges in the, um, in the House bill. Um, and we hope for the best that, uh, you know, millions of Americans don't lose health coverage. But I don't see any upside uh, for virtually anyone except for extremely young and healthy people and very, very rich people. So if you're not, you've got basically two years to get young and healthy or very rich. Otherwise, you're screwed. <laughs> So for those who uh, may not be uh, following this in exquisite detail, as as some of us may be, um, this I don't substitute error for certainty. Uh, How do you get a crowd which is frequently wrong but rarely confused to operate by that single principle? Well, I mean, I think think the the real problem is that that we've got – very few people uh, in the process so far who have been knowledgeable about what they're talking about, and, and I'm talking about the politicians here. Um, I think it's a slightly different story in the Senate, um, where I think you'll see more sophistication uh, on the staff side and, and uh, uh, you know, a better understanding of what's at stake uh, and the politics of it, particularly amongst 
you know, some of the more moderate uh, Republican members in, in the Senate, um, especially, as I say, in those states that are, uh, you know, have experienced Medicaid expansion. Because in my travels across the country, that's the thing you hear in the ground uh, that's made a difference. Um, you know, a lot of people being helped, even though, uh, you know, the payer mix may, uh, for individual institutions may be impaired going forward. Their bad debt problems have been ameliorated, but their payer mix is worse going forward. But net-net, I think it's a benefit, and it's why many states, um, hospital associations in many states, even very red states, would like to see Medicaid expanded, uh, even though the politics don't favor it. Right, right. So I want to ask you to set the table here, but first uh, I want to suggest that some say the original sin, if you will, is the Supreme Court, while they affirmed the uh, constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, they basically said Medicaid expansion is optional. And that seems to be the self-inflicted wound that most of the Republicans are now rallying under that, quote, Obamacare is failing. You agree? Yeah, I do, actually. I think that's exactly right. And and it was a very mixed blessing that the Supreme Court affirmed, uh, as you say, correctly say, the, uh, you, know, you know, the constitutionality of... Uh, of raising taxes, which is what the mandate was, um, but undermined it profoundly by making it optional on the Medicaid expansion. I mean, I just spent the weekend in Texas with the Texas Care Alliance, and I was telling my Texas friends it's easier to get into Princeton than it is to get a Medicaid card in Texas. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, seriously, because if you're, no. uh, if you're a, a childless adult, you just can't get it. So it is, by definition, easier to get into Princeton. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, even if you if you if you have children, you you know you make more than seven grand a year. You're too rich for Medicaid, and that leaves millions of people out. Uh, you know, and literally a million people in the coverage gap in Texas. So I yes, I mean it it has had a big impact uh, on. And if you look at the states that expanded coverage, the reduction in the uninsured is dramatic. My state, California, we went from seventeen percent uninsured to seven. Um, which is dramatic, um, and and on the you know seven is the magic number because seven percent is the difference in typical uh, costs of you know exchange product in the, between those states that expanded Medicaid and those that didn't. So in other words, there's been double benefit um, in the states that expanded Medicaid. There's a uh, you know likelihood that the exchange is higher functioning for a whole bunch of reasons, but not the least of which is some of the lowest income and sickest folk uh, were covered through the Medicaid program. So I'm really interested in your take on the, uh, the affordable, uh, on the American Health Care Act. But first, just in, a bre- in very broad brush terms, what is on the table here as to the, um, um, the ACA? What do we have versus what is the AHCA proposing to supplement uh, it for? Give us sort of broad brush kind of compare and contrast. Well, I, I mean, I see the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it was not perfect. Let's be clear. Um, there, you know, there was an artful final uh, draftsmanship of the language, and there were pieces that that probably could have done better. But I always saw it in very simple terms of rich people were writing a check for poor people. I mean, that there were givebacks by the industry. You know, in my my Beatles lexicon, John and Paul. Um, so that uh, coverage could be expanded because the bottom half of the income distribution can't afford the product uh, without substantial subsidies. 
and Medicaid was one part of that bargain and, and coverage expansion through exchanges and subsidies associated with exchanges was the other part of it. And there was a lot of falderall that you and I have talked before about of accountable care plans and uh, sorry accountable care organizations and and uh, you know every plausible health services experiment that anybody had in liberal universities in Boston were thrown into the mix to try and make the thing affordable. And to be perfectly fair, a lot of those things worked out reasonably well. I mean, ACOs are directionally correct. They're not massively effective. Uh, you know, payment, uh, value-based payment, I think, has moved the needle on, on certain things and gotten the attention of the field. But, but, you know, generally speaking, it caused the industry to think more about value um, and it caused uh, the industry to expand uh, coverage and reach out to lower-income people. And I think that's, that's the upside of the ACA. Now, there was a lot of regulatory apparatus and oversight and hoop-jumping that was required. But nevertheless, I think net-net, uh, it's undeniable that at least on the metric of coverage and, in fact, of total health care costs, it was a success. Maybe not a political success, but certainly a policy success. What's at stake, I think, is a number of things. One is just the sheer dynamics of that coverage expansion. You know, you write less of a check, uh, and therefore you have fewer people covered. And, you know, I, I, at your suggestion, I managed to get hold of the Jake Tapper uh, interview where Secretary Price was uh, squirming to try and not answer the question of how $880 million or billion dollars less was not $880 billion less, but um, <laughs> it's less. It's less than it would have been under current law. I mean, you can't deny that. That's what the Congressional Budget Office said. So that's really what's at stake. But I think, and I was just on a call with some of my colleagues who are deeply in the Washington uh, milieu right now. I mean, one of the things we were talking about is just the degree to which the progress on payment reform and the progress on value, which the new administration purports to support might be uh, uh, damaged by the lack of clarity and the lack of forcefulness of, of committing to things like bundled payment and, uh, and uh, MACRA and so forth with the, the same kind of urgency that Andy Slavitt CMS and that uh, you know, Clinton administration CMS would have had uh, going forward. Yeah, and I say a shout out to Andy Slavitt for the work he's done since leaving CMS. So, absolutely. I mean, I I count Andy as a, a dear friend, and and I'll I'll tell you, I think he's done God's work and and his uh, return to private life and and uh, and on a bipartisan basis. I mean, we're working with the bipartisan policy center, and uh, I, I completely agree with you. If you're not following Slavitt on Twitter, you're missing an opportunity to be informed. Right, and that would be at A Slavit S L A V I T T. Great work, Andy. Um, all right, how about a pivot then to um, what we're looking at in terms of is the American Health Care Act DOA in the Senate? Will the Senate essentially um, rewrite the bill? Will they somehow find a way to math, to make the math work? What do you think? Well, I, I do think it's going to be rewritten. I think it's actually very encouraging that the signals, early signals, that is that you know they're taking this up like de novo, um, not necessarily just doing a little minor edit uh, to HCA. And I think that's probably a good thing. 
Um, I think the places that it's likely to get, uh, uh, that it's likely to look different when it comes out of that sausage making will be that the subsidies um, may be uh, larger than is in the HCA, so a little bit more generosity. I think what I find troubling in the way the tax credits for you know, individual market were put forward, um, you know, to, to do it simply on the basis of, of age was nuts. Um, and so I think hopefully that will be redirected to, to have a little bit more progressivity in the way in which it's done and, and also address some of the regional variation issues because what basically was going to do is make it slightly cheaper for younger people but a hell of a lot more expensive for older, sicker people, especially if they were in Alaska, right? So, I mean, I think those are the kinds of things that would be altered. Um, and I also think, as I said earlier, that Medicaid expansion will be much harder to convince, uh, you know, a majority of the Senate to, to pursue as aggressively as it was in the in the House uh, HCA bill. Um, but make no mistake, if they they want to get something over the line, and and, and it's not going to be uh, as generous as uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, so any any bill that does make it through will, in my humble opinion, be worse than the status quo. Uh, let's talk about the cornerstone of this public pressure right now on the the reformers here, and that is uh, oh they're um, pre-existing. If you have a pre-existing uh, condition, you won't have to worry. How do you rate that claim? Oh, I mean, look. The, the the way you make stuff cheaper is you exclude sick people, right? I mean, that, that's how it worked <laughs> before the individual market. Uh, right. You, you mm-hmm. want to make health insurance cheaper? You can make it cheaper. You just don't cover people who have illnesses. Um, right. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a futurist or a rocket scientist to figure that mm-hmm. out. And mm-hmm. that's where the Freedom Caucus weren't stupid. I mean, they, were, they may be evil, but they're not stupid. Um, you know, to say, well, the, to any extent that we can exclude people, and give them, in, you know, an inadequate amount of money behind that, you know, through risk pools or invisible friends or whatever they're talking about. Um, you know, it, I, nothing wrong with a high risk. Well, actually, I don't like high risk pools because it ghettoizes sick people. But um, if you're going to do it, do it with enough money to be able to pay for the people in the pool. And mm-hmm. no, no one has ever done a risk pool, whether it be Obama or states, has ever put enough money in a pool to make it work in a way that's compassionate. Yeah, um, yeah. And so to undermine that, in my view, mm-hmm. is is right. awful. And I think Jimmy Kimmel and, and others who have come forward and with compelling individual stories will win the day on this. I think it's very, very hard uh, to, right. you know, take away essential health benefits and community <laughs> rating once you've given it to the American public. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm actually reminded by an article J.D. Kleinke posted a while back. He says, the reason there's no GOP replacement for the Affordable Care Act is because the Affordable Care Act is the GOP health plan. Yeah. Well, there's truth to that. You know, I mean, um, Ted yeah. Kennedy, bless right. God rest his soul, right. Right. his final right. position was, was right of Richard Nixon's health plan, yeah. the final analysis. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how many uh, Republicans forget uh, Nixon authored the um, 
you know, the HMO Act, right? You know? Right. So if you have something other than a 24-7 uh, event horizon here, you might understand that, yep, healthcare is complicated. Yeah. All right, I knew this would happen. Uh, I knew we'd run out of time before I, uh, talking about uh, this, but before we pivot to your article. But uh, let's do that. Oh, one last thing, ACOs. I've been tr- um, uh, or some message out of um, the HHS uh, whether or not ACOs, even though you say they're directionally appropriate, whether in fact there's a safe harbor here or could they be a casualty in whatever comes out of the Senate uh, on a revised plan? I, I don't think so right now, but I don't rule out. I think I, I think some of these things will be casualties through lack of attention and um, lack of uh, support, uh, whether it be intellectual support or financial support um it may not be it, it may be um uh, harm done through neglect rather than through deliberate sabotage but i i would say right now and i think it's this one thing the administration is going to be urged by conservatives to do is to reinforce the volume to value message going forward right and i think to the surprise of many who basically proclaimed that uh, ACOs, too little, too late, were DOA, and uh, they're actually showing some surprising results. And the uh, tweaks that uh, enabled the Next Generation series are probably probably going to even accelerate those results in the near term. So, Right, and I know about- you tried this very closely, and I, I certainly am very supportive. And, and you know, as I say, the, the results to date have been – you know, modest but directionally correct in my view, and and uh, uh, it, it's a learning process, and and one that I think we've got to keep learning and and tweaking and improving. And uh, I think people like Slavit were always of that mind when in their implementation of it. Right. So this is a good pivot to your article because obviously this this is part of the strategy, right? So you you published an article, ten common themes in healthcare leader strategies. And rather than tick down every single one, we don't have time for it. Why don't you give us a summary of what you're saying there, what you're seeing? And as I read through it, I was thinking, well, okay, um, this could have been written eight years ago, ten years ago. Um, why are they so slow to adopt? Well, I mean, I think that's actually a very good point. And, and I mean, the, the, the time constant of healthcare is is glacial, let's be honest. I mean, we talk in this industry about change, but we go to conferences about change. We don't actually change that much. Um, and that's been good for me as a futurist. You know, you never have to change your slides. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, which is kind of ironically true. But but, you know, I was struck uh, just in my travels, because I see a lot of strategic plans, that these 10 common themes, and, they're, you know, they're no surprising. I won't rattle them off. You should say people go read it. But um, it, 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 they basically reflect what is the kind of uh, menu that people are selecting from when they're talking about organizational uh, priorities, you know, and it's it's a combination of quality and value and, and patient engagement and physician engagement. Um, uh, broadly speaking, um, the fiscal—I mean, the, th- the the context that we just talked about for the the last 25 minutes—does um, have an impact. Let's be clear. Um, you know, there'll be less money in tighter environments if if uh, the more mean-spirited end of the p- 
policy options comes forward. That, and that will challenge institutions. But what I was struck with in conversations with CEOs is it wouldn't change the fundamental menu of choices or the kind of game plan that people were following. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's partly because people take their jobs seriously, um, are still committed to serving their populations and serving their, their patients, and they have sick people turning up at their institutions and they're trying to do stuff to look after them. And I think that, you know, in, 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 in that sense, the, there's, it's kind of stayed the course uh, on, on pursuing that work. Well, the key driver here to me is this physician relationship thing. Just talk a little bit about these three buckets because I have a direct interest having worked in both Texas and California. I'm rather intimately familiar with the dynamics of both of those markets. Right. Well, the three buckets really is an observation that in almost every non-Kaiser health system, and Kaiser has its own bucket, one big gigantic bucket of, of the Permanente group, but um, most places have an employed medical group that they've grown substantially, some through acquisition, but more recently organically. Um, a second bucket of very loyal, sort of tightly, more tightly integrated physicians, and a third bucket of community doctors that they are dependent on uh, for both referrals, and in many instances, a lot of the subspecialists may be in that third bucket of working both sides of the street and not necessarily exclusively tied to you. And what I'm seeing, and, and a great quote from my friend Dan Varga, who's the chief clinical officer at Texas Health Resources, I mean, he's been talking in, within his system about we've got to provide economic docking opportunities for physicians in each of those three buckets. And I think that's what I'm seeing in my travels. And you're absolutely right, uh, whether it be California or Texas, the buckets exist, um, but there's sort of different nuances in, in terms of some of the innovations that are going on with the, the three uh, different buckets of dogs. So uh, why hasn't the Kaiser Permanente model taken over the world? And, and for those who may not be intimately familiar with it, hospitals are, they operate a health plan. Hospitals are cost centers, not typical revenue centers. And the Permanente Medical Group, which is a for-profit medical group, is basically driving resource allocation and strategic planning inside the network. Why is that not the successful formula elsewhere? Well, it's hard to do. And, uh, you know, you, the, the precondition is, uh, uh, you know, an aligned uh, medical group is a starting point. And building medical groups is tough um, to do what I call shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder medicine that, uh, you know, I, I was privileged to be the moderator of the 50th anniversary of the Permanente Group some considerable time ago. Um, you know, and I always say to people who are trying to aspire to be Kaiser, I mean, you really should have started in, the in 1945, and then you'd be, you'd be doing quite <laughs> well by now. Uh, it takes time. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's the very short answer to a much longer discussion. But, uh, um, you know, my view is there are a lot of people who are aspiring to move directionally towards the kind of integration of Kaiser. But the, the basic dilemma persists, which is, you know, you, you essentially have 10, 12, 30 maybe percent of your revenue coming at risk, but you're still making the vast majority of the money doing ka-ching on a fee-for-service or fee-for-service with tricks, as I call it, basis. And that's, that's a hard thing to go off of. Um, Kaiser is, is uh, focused on keeping people out of the hospital and aligned through its financing, and not everybody 
can get there fast enough to make it really uh, an imperative for fundamental transformation. And how about health system execs thinking about going the provider-sponsored health plan direction? Well, I think there's a kind of cooling of ardor towards that, people recognizing how difficult it is. I mean, it's, a, it's not for the faint-hearted. I mean, I, we, in our surveys, we find probably about 15 to 20 percent are in, are in serious about risk. Uh, not necessarily all the way to having their own plan, but, but about 20% in surveys would say they plan to have a state health license, health insurance license within 10 years. Um, you know, again, I think it's more about execution than strategy in this case. I think execution is incredibly important. So um, we'll see how it works out. I think some will be successful. I think a lot of people will blow their brains out on it uh, if, they're, if they're not particularly attentive to the details of making it work. Yeah, and let's not for- forget the C word, culture. It has something yes. to do with execution. Well, Ian, uh, I knew it. It's time passes too quickly here. Um, I want to thank my guest, Ian Morrison, for his time and insights today. Do follow Ian on Twitter at a unique Twitter handle, S-E-C-C-U-R-V, Sec Curve. Can, what does that mean, by the way? Oh, I wrote a book, The Second Curve, right? Oh, and The so, Second Curve. There you go. Okay. S-E-C-C-U-R-V-E. That's, there um, you go. That's how you get it. That's Ian on Twitter, and, and his website is www.ianmorrison2rs.com. Check him out. Great guy. Good insights. So I hope we get to do this again soon, perhaps uh, as the output of the Senate uh, in the consideration of the uh, American Health Care Act. Is that a possibility? Absolutely. Sign okay. me up. Okay, Aaron. Take care, buddy. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having All right. me. You bet. Bye-bye. That'll do it for today's broadcast, folks. Thank you for joining me. This is Greg Masters. Follow me on Twitter at 2HealthGuru and check us out on the web at www.healthinnovationmedia.com as well as acowatch.com where I write about health reform and what's happening in this uh, ACA repeal and replace venue. Thanks so much. Bye now. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.